So hello everyone, good afternoon. I'm so delighted to be here and to talk to you all. I'm going to talk today about patience. Um, but before I talk about patience, I want to make a small reference to something one of our dear sisters said earlier about the ways to listen to the Dhamma. And lately I have just been kind of really on this little kick about these ways that we listen to the Dhamma because I don't think it's an insignificant understanding of um, how this practice works with us. So there's a lot of different ways of saying this, but our, one of our local very senior teachers, Rodney Smith, uh, the way he explains this is that we have two knowledge systems. All of us as humans have two knowledge systems. We have a linear, rational, conceptual knowledge system, and we have an intuitive, intuitive, non-conceptual knowledge system. And, um, you know, most of the way that we... Um, walk in the world, we're using this linear conceptual. Some people think it's Western, like Western European, but I don't think so. I think a lot of our indigenous cultures actually had this type of system as well. Uh, but this, and I think definitely some indigenous European types had this um, intuitive system as well. So I don't want to assign it to any particular ethnicity or nationality. But um, the way that we work with this is that, um, and how this relates to how we study the Dharma is, uh, the Buddha taught, at least for the Four Noble Truths, that there's three ways to, uh, to engage with the Three Noble Truths, I mean the Four Noble Truths, and I think this is true, it, it is for me anyway, of all of the Buddhist teachings. The first way that we engage with the Dharma or the teachings is theoretically. You know, some of our traditions, like the Vajrayana tradition, you know, the uh, lamas will spend like six years debating finer points of how to understand the Buddha Dharma. Conceptually, they will want to have the most precise conceptual understanding of what the Buddha taught. Uh, and we'll do this, you know, uh, we, we who are um, students of the Nikayas or the Buddha Suttas will also want to know what the Buddha taught in the Suttas, will want to know the theoretical um, the, th the theory of what he taught. And then the second way we engage, you know, after these lamas will debate for six years a finer point of the theory of Dharma, what they will do is they will go sit on the cushion and they will engage with the theory in practice. So that's the second way that we engage with this Dharma, this Buddha Dharma, is we engage with it by what it teaches, teaches us of how to practice. Not only on the cushion, but... You know, this is an eightfold path. There's seven other instructions about how to engage with the Dharma in our daily life, how to practice with it. And then thirdly, the way we, uh, we, we um, engage with the Dharma is through direct, clear realization of what the Buddha taught. Just a way that we uh, get the truth of his teachings at the core of our being that oftentimes is non-conceptual. We will try to explain, you know, our understanding, maybe a deep understanding of the three characteristics of existence, but, you know, it will be like our Zen relatives um, tell us, it will be like a finger pointing at the moon. You know, the moon holds the truth of the Dharma, 
but and the words that we have to, to uh, speak about it or to teach it are like a finger pointing at the moon. We have to go beyond the finger to really see the truth of the teaching. We have to realize it deeply for ourselves in our hearts. So I say that as a way to apologize in advance <laughs> for, um, you know, I will do the best that I can to, um, to convey this very deep uh, teaching of patience and to say this is my finger pointing at this moon. So patience is one of the um, ten paramis in the Theravada tradition or six paramis in the uh, Vajrayana and Mahayana tradition. Uh, and these paramis, even though you know, they're actually not found in the uh, Buddha suttas and the Nikayas, uh, I think many Buddhists believe that these are actually the conditions for awakening. It's when you can bring to fruition and ripen these really beautiful qualities of our, of our being that we create the conditions for awakening to happen. And one of these um, paramis is patience. Patience. And what is patience? Patience is... Actually, there's three aspects of patience in uh, the Buddhist teachings. The first aspect of patience is perseverance or gentle forbearance to persevere. The second aspect of patience is acceptance of hardship or endurance of hardship. So it is perseverance, forbearance, acceptance and perseverance of heart, endurance of hardship. And then finally, Acceptance of the truth. So these are three aspects of patience uh, that were taught by the Buddha. So what is the first one? Gentle forbearance. What does it mean to uh, have forbearance or perseverance in the, in the face of um, difficulty? Or just in the face of anything? You know, we could be um, having a really beautiful experience on the cushion... And, or in life, and we could decide just to melt into that, to just feel like this is the natural flow of life, and it's going to be like this forever. Or on the cushion, we could um, be you know, having a, a beautiful sit, and rather than hold it in mindfulness, we could sink into that beautiful feeling. And I, you know, I'm saying this because I do this very often. When I'm getting positive... Um, uh, Vedana or pleasant sensations on the cushion, I have to remind myself to be present with it and hold it in mindfulness and not just to really indulge in it. You know, I have to see it as another passing occurrence. You know, we can totally appreciate it, but we need to, uh, you know, realize that it, it, it is like everything else a passing occurrence. So this is also often true too. We've heard you know, our fellow Sangha, Sangha today talk about how difficult life can be. You know, we heard it from two of our Sangha members about how difficult it could be at work. And, you know, this is something I'm sure that we have all experienced sometime in our life. Uh, you know, one um, thing that I love to uh, remember when, you know, I see racism and discrimination or even bigger influences at work at my job. You know, I teach at the University of Washington and the aspirations of my profession are really very noble and very, uh, you know, I really have uh, faith and trust that everyone is trying to do the, uh, do the right thing. 
But in the face of, you know, just a lack of resources, in the face of, you know, economic greed and, you know, how our system's not working, oftentimes, uh, you know, the ability to manifest those good intentions are beyond the control of anybody that we're working with. You know, it could be that they really want to have good intentions, but given little resources and given a sense of responsibility of maintaining stewardship over that, they make decisions that are not always in the best um, interest of people. So, you know, that's one way to think about forbearance is that even if life is um, beautiful and wonderful and even when life is the opposite of that, as it always is, we can maintain a sense of perseverance and a sense of forbearance that, yes, we will continue to do the practice in the light of these uh, vicissitudes of life, of the um, gain and loss and... uh, gain and loss and fame and disrepute and, um, you know, all of the ways that life goes up and down. So we accept our negative emotion and we accept our positive emotion and we realize that they, like everything else, are arising and passing away in our sense door. The second, um, and probably my most favorite, not favorite, but most interesting aspect of patience for me at this moment, as and it will change, is patience under hardship or patience in the face of insult. Actually, uh, one of the um, commentaries calls it um, patience with insult. So let's all reflect on the last time we were insulted. (laughs) Is it so hard to think of a time we were insulted? (laughs) Even by ourselves. When was the last time we were even insulted by ourselves? And I want to actually, um, you know, many of you know that I was so fortunate. I was able to... um, teach, you know, help teach the first month of the three-month retreat at IMS, and it was so wonderful because we had uh, 35 yogis of color out of 87 for the three-month retreat. It was so wonderful, such a watershed moment. And I'll tell you um, a little, it's not a secret, but I I was sitting with a teaching team after about three weeks of the um, retreat, and we were having dinner, and I just commented, I said, you know, the hall just looks normal. It doesn't look like there's anything um, different happening. And all of the teachers, you know, Joseph and Carol and Guy and Winnie and Andrea said, yeah, it just looks like what you would see if you were walking down the street. And I said, well, what is it going to be like, uh, like next year when there's 87 yogis and two people of color? And they all just went, that's never going to happen again. You know, it will always be like this again. We have to just make sure that it's always like this into the future. Mm-hmm. So I just want to tell you that because I almost burst into tears when I heard that. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, what happens in the, in the you know, endurance in the, uh, in the face of hardship is a commitment to do what's right and then to let go of the... Uh, to let go of how it works out because it might not work out how you like it. And I also wanted to um, 
um, also bring up another ex- excellent example of endurance in the face of hardship. Because a lot of us think that to endure hardship is to maybe not want to do anything about it, right? You have to surrender to the fact that you know, the first noble truth of suffering shows up for a lot of us as sexism and homophobia and racism. That's how the first noble truth shows up for us because there, you know, we all can, um, I think, or, or know that part of this path is uh, knowing dukkha. You know, that's the first noble truth is uh, dukkha, and it has a verb associated with it, and dukkha is to be known. And I think some of us can think at times that to open to dukkha and to accept that racism and sexism and all of these different isms exist is to somehow acquiesce to that or somehow just surrender to that. And I you know, want to say that that's absolutely not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught to see clearly is the only way to overcome that. And uh, Winnie, one of, our, uh, one of the teachers I was apprenticing with, uh, told this beautiful story. She, she was giving a talk on metta, and she gave this beautiful story about, many of you have heard of uh, Malala Musefze. Musefze. Malala Musefze. Do you all know who Malala Musefze is? She's this wonderful Afghani 16-year-old. She was probably 15 at the time. She was a crusader for um, education for women. And last October, October of 2012, the, the man actually who just got voted into the head of the uh, Afghani uh, Taliban, who was at the time like a general or something, ordered her death. Ordered the death of this 15-year-old girl for supporting uh, you know, universal education for Afghani kids. So, um, you know, they, the Taliban actually shot and killed two other girls and shot her and, you know, shot her in the head, but she lived. And, you know, here she was, you know, the target, you know, a, a price put on her head by the Taliban for her, you know, a very convincing resport, uh, support for education for girls. And um, so, you know, she got better. She got flown to England where she actually lives right now. And in July of this year, July of 2013, she gave a talk before the United Nations. And I wanted to pull up her speech, but I just want to pull up, I just want to um, say a few words about what uh, endurance in hardship and endurance in the face of insult looks like to Malala, because this 16-year-old girl is an inspiration to all of us, to all of us. So Malala said in her uh, half an hour speech to the UN, she said, the terrorists thought that they would change my aims and stop my ambitions, she said, but nothing changed in my life except this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage were born. She continued, I want education for the sons and daughters of the Taliban and all the terrorists and extremists. So that's what fortitude and what endurance of hardship looks like or can look like. It can look like that. She has a totally open heart. She talked in that speech of having no hate against anyone who had, you know, having absolutely no hate in her heart. 
Let, let's all aspire to that. So that's the second element of um, patience, one of the paramis, is endurance of hardship and endurance of insults. And then the third aspect of patience, of the third dimension of the patience of um, the patience of the parami of patience is acceptance of the truth. And I really love this one too, the acceptance of the truth. So what does that mean? In my understanding right now, it means to accept the truth of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, you know, of course, we know that the f first noble truth is that dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactoriness is, you know, the condition of existence. And for me, um, you know, this, I think for all of us who are uh, students of the Dharma, this understanding really changes and moves with time. Right now, how I am taking the most comfort in it is actually something that Ruby pointed out. Uh, last time, she actually went to a, I, I think, a retreat on Dukkha or in the Four Noble Truths. I don't know why it was you were telling us. But Ruby was telling us that um, her understanding, her current understanding of Dukkha was that Dukkha means, or the truth of suffering, the First Noble Truth means that there's no satisfaction in any conditioned experience. And I really like that. It's just so simple. It's... You know, it could be that there's bigger suffering. You know, dukkha dukkha exists and dukkha of change exists. But I think in this third, uh, this third the, uh, type of dukkha, sankara dukkha, uh, you know, part of it is us to understand that there's no no conditioned ex conditioned thing in the world can give us ultimate satisfaction. And I really. Um, had a great example of this. I was sitting in another um, Dharma group, actually another Sangha here in Seattle that meets once a month. And uh, one of our Sangha members was giving this beautiful, uh, uh, this beautiful story about last time she had been in the wilderness and how what an exquisite experience she had. She was in the wilderness and it was a perfect experience. She was just really happy and the calmness was just pervasive. But right at that moment of her perfect experience of nature, the thought arose in her, I wanted to be here tomorrow. <laughs> so even within the deepest sense of fulfillment and um, I think at least conditioned fulfillment, that wanting or craving and clinging still arises even within those deep senses of peace. So that clinging can still arise in the middle of a conditioned, uh, blissful experience. So these are the three aspects of um, patience. That's uh, patience in uh, gentle forbearance to persevere. Perseverance is a, uh, an important element of patience that we want to water the seeds of. The second element is endurance of hardship, to just realize that we are going to uh, experience hardship in life. We are going to be insulted. And, you know, we just need to surrender to the truth of that. And, and then finally, to um, realize that we need to ex accept the truth of conditioned existence. 
Um, other aspects of the, tr the truth of um, conditioned ex existence or things for us to know the truth of is, you know, many of you know the three characteristics of existence. But oftentimes the, uh, we're not accepting the truth of the three characteristics of, of existence, and this is why we struggle. Um, and actually, these are also connected to one of my other very favorite teachings, and that is the teaching about um, the vipalasas or, or the distortions of perception. And this is where we get caught a lot. This is really the source of a lot of our suffering is not realizing um, that we're not seeing the, tru the truth of existence. And we all know this. The first distortion of perception is that... Um, uh, whatever is happening in the moment is going to last forever. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We always don't realize, and it it adds to our suffering to think that particularly whatever is unpleasant in the moment is going to last forever. And that's one thing that really gets us hooked and adds to our suffering. And it's the opposite of patience. It's being impatient with the reality of the moment because... We think that even though we're handling it in this moment, in the next moment we won't be able to. So that's the first distortion, is thinking that whatever is happening in the moment is going to last forever. The second distortion that also breeds impatience is that our thought that for, for, an, for an experience to be acceptable, it should be pleasant. I mean, do, have we ever thought to ourselves, you know, experience is acceptable whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or just plain boring, <laughs> you know? Also, you know, we probably think that experience shouldn't be boring, that an experience that is uh, devoid of pleasant or pain is unacceptable. Oftentimes, we, will, we would actually choose unpleasant over boring. I mean, we all know in our relationships, if our relationships are getting kind of boring, sometimes we'll even stir it up just so there's something happening there. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's the second uh, vipalasa or the distortion of perception. Our perception or idea that things have to be pleasant in order to be um, acceptable. And then the third one, I think, is probably one of the most strongest ones, and that is that we believe all experience is under our control, is happening to us, or, you know, all experience is happening to us personally, it's all personal, and that we somehow should be able to control it. And that's, you know, one of the deepest vipalasas or distortions of perception that we have that, you know, even, you know, all of us are, uh, have been alive long enough to know that the causes of one thing happening are so multiple. There are social determinants of it. There are biological determinants. There are weather determinants. There are economic determinants. I mean, it is so complex about how anything comes to be. But, you know, when something happens to us, somehow we take total responsibility for it, whether it's good or whether it's bad. It's like, I made this wonderful thing happen. It would be like Arena and I sitting here thinking, oh, yeah, this happened because of us. 
<laughs> you know, this happened because of, you know, the good thoughts of multiple people for generations, including the Buddha his, himself. So to, um, to think that, you know, our presence even controlled 10% of the variance of something happening is just, you know, a very simplistic way to look at life. And then the, you know, other part of that is the... Um, belief that uh, things are happening to us. And, you know, that is one of the deepest misconceptions is that we exist as a separate self that, um, you know, that can feel loneliness or can feel apart from or can feel somehow thrown off the island. You know, that's just not how we exist. And I think, I hate to say, you know, this might not be a POC thing to say, but I think that Climate change is going to show everybody that. I mean, it is to the point now that we are going to have to get over ourselves or, you know, I've heard people say it's already too late. But, you know, we just have, we're going to have to get over that sense that we are individual, um, material, and massing human beings or it's going to be the end of everybody. So those are the... um, and then there's one other, um, one other uh, distortion of perception that I really love, and that goes along with this whole notion of impatience. And that distortion of perce- uh, perception is to see things that are um, not beautiful as beautiful, and to see things that are um, um, not all ugly as totally ugly. And I think this happens to us a lot in our work environment or in any environment when we get really impatient. And this vipalasa the Buddha talked about is, you know, the Buddha talked about how all experience is something he called heapness. It's a combination of a lot of different things happening at the same time. And what we do as humans is we have this um, inclination to latch on to one little piece of that heap. And if we see the one little beautiful piece of it, we uh, universalize that beauty to be that beauty or that positive characteristic to be the entire thing that we're looking at. And we often do this with people maybe we, we love, you know, or people that we're attracted to. We see one aspect of them and we just universalize that and say, oh my gosh, that person is just the best person I ever met in my whole life. And, you know, after some exposure to the person, we realize that that's not true that that person is actually, you know, has a lot of different things going on at the same time. And I think this happens to us uh, when we get very impatient is uh, just as the same way as, you know, um, things that we see are beautiful or heaps of a lot of different things. The same is true of things that we see as uh, ugly or not beautiful is that we might latch on, and I know this is true of some of the people that I work with, you know. You know, I work in public health, and I do believe that they have a deep aspiration for equality and for wellness for everyone, but we have all been so trained in this Western uh, system that is, you know, just um, that, um, you know, categorizes and and uh, attributes value to people based on these ascribed uh, char- uh, these um, characteristics we're born into, our gender, our ethnicity, our race, our social class, and things like that. But, you know, we tend to do this um, 
in, in our everyday life that makes us really impatient. We see one bad thing about someone or an organization or something that we're involved in and we universalize that to the entire experience. Not realizing that if we look, there might be some good things in this experience that um, allow us to continue with this job or with this um, whatever relationship or whatever it is in a way that doesn't do harm to our integrity. So how do we, um, how do we work with impatience? One deep way is to just continue to send ourselves the goodwill and the intention to um, be happy with yourself and the situation just as it is. Is to surrender to life as it is. You know, one of our teachers, Michelle McDonald, has added to the metaphrase, may I be happy just as I am. With all of our impatience, all of our you know, uh, greed for success, all of our um, need to be seen and, uh, you know, uh, all of the positive vicissitudes we want, the gain we want, the success we want, the, um, all of that, to embrace that and to be okay with that as well. You know, I have found in my life that um, part of, letting go and healing is opening to those parts of myself that are just so difficult to open to, as Arena has been saying all day. And uh, my teacher Joseph says, you can always tell whether you're accepting something by posing the question, if this stayed for the rest of my life, would I be okay with it? I think that's a wonderful way to see whether you're really accepting a situation. If this anger stayed for the rest of my life, would I be okay with it? Um, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was in love with one of my professors, and I was just beating myself up about it because I was actually happily married at the time. And I remember hearing that teaching and just surrendering and say, okay, if I'm in love with this guy for the rest of my life, it's okay. And it wasn't until I really opened to that being okay that it started changing. So I would offer you to ask yourself of your deepest, the things, you know, we are throwing away at the deepest level. Can we just open and accept them as part of our humanity? So that's my minutes on patience. Anything to say? You had You've to like covered it all. But you had some great stories. Irene want want to tack where tack onto what uh, Bonnie said in her beautiful Dharma talk. Was a lovely Dharma talk. Bonnie it was so comprehensive. Thank you. Um, uh, tack onto the acceptance part and begin with this poem that's one of my favorite poems we waste so much energy trying to cover up who we are when beneath every attitude is the wanting to be loved and beneath every anger 
is a wound to be healed. And beneath every sadness is a fear there will not be enough time. Our challenge each day is not to get dressed to face the world, but to unglove ourselves so that the doorknob feels cold and the car handle feels wet and the kiss goodbye feels like lips of another being, soft and unrepeatable. That desire that we have to feel ungloved, to feel life so intimately, so living inside of ourselves that we feel awake, that we feel um, um, that we're marrying life. I think Mary Olva has an expression in one of her poems, I don't something like I'm totally wrecking it. I don't want to leave this world not having married life, something like that. I don't want to leave this world not having married life, not having betrothed myself to this life that's been given to me, both in the complexity that Bonnie has named and also in the complexity that hasn't been named. And that vulnerability that is asked of us requires the acknowledgement that Bonnie was speaking to of the places inside of us that are difficult to acknowledge. And even though I've heard the Dharma so many times in, in, in just different ways, in Dharma talks and in teachings and even in Eckhart Tolle and I mean in the multitudes of ways we hear teachings of truth. Um, I see the ways that I'm ashamed of shame, or of making mistakes, or of judgment, or of places how life lives in my body, my body. And even though the Buddha talks over and over again that we, each one of us, inherit the capacity to shame, the capacity to judge, the capacity to fail and blame ourselves, the capacity to be envious, to want to destroy, to be jealous, all those capacities, and that they're living in every single one of us. Even though that's acknowledged as a universal phenomenon, when we experience it, we experience it personally as something to be ashamed about. And not only that, but the place that we keep acknowledging, especially under all that, that sense of inadequacy or insufficiency, 
somehow or somewhere that this moment and this isn't quite good enough and I can hang that not good enough on all kinds of pegs or the sense of insufficiency. I could hang that on all kinds of pegs. This is the reason that I feel that. That not quite fitting into life, which is another classical definition of dukkha, that the axle of the wheel isn't a good fit, so that it keeps slipping. That sense of slipping or not being at home in my life or in my body or in this um, imperfect mind, that place isn't universally acknowledged. And because it isn't, because we are not supported to also honor and acknowledge these places that are living inside of us, we shut down. And because we shut down, we become impatient. And because we shut down and we become impatient, we can't feel the knob on the door. We can't in some ways even feel the love of our friends and family and the, the love of our teachers. That we can't feel that. And not only we can't feel it, but then we feel ashamed of it. And that dynamic keeps building and building and building again. And one of the beautiful teachings that the Buddha gives is that this is how it is. This is how it is. That these energies are living inside of us. That because we misunderstand their origin and, and that they are, we shame and blame ourselves and take them personally. Because we do that, we experience being shut down and because we experience being shut down we feel homeless whether we have homes or not that there's some sense where we feel separate from life and not touched by it or awake in it or um, um, it in its grooviness <laughs> And so I, I've been talking a fair amount, so I'm not going to talk about it a lot, been working with um, uh, um, nausea and fatigue and um, shortness of breath. I've been coughing up um, this, um, thick green bundles of phlegm and blood and... and um, and I've watched these dynamics happen inside of me. I've watched how that there's some way my mind t takes responsibility for my sickness and that then I think I should be doing it better and that in that shame or judgment that I haven't navigated it as skillfully as I could, or that I, I um, 
get really scared and in my fear I, I make a multicolored Hollywood drama about what's happening to my body and my mind and I'm calling up people and I'm saying, oh my God, oh my God, do you know what the doctor just said? And then I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel shame. And I'm like, of course, Arena, of course. You're not fully awakened. Of course these energies are going to be living inside of you. And of course you are impatient with them. And of course you feel shut down. And even though so many people, and I also feel it, even so many people are sending you matter, you are lying here feeling so lonely. And one of the beautiful qualities and capacities of patience is really forgiving, is forgiving and allowing ourselves to be so caught, imperfect, so angry or jealous, lonely or homeless, of really giving space to those energies because as we do, the heart opens into love again. And in that love there comes the conditions for feeling life then in a way that not only holds that, but where we're outside of it. I don't mean outside as in dislocated or separate. I mean outside in that there is a groundedness and a beingness where I don't feel sometimes so defined by what's going on. That in this practice, as we go through the cycles, these cycles in our lives, because for you it might not be health, it might be something else, as we go through these cycles, something grows that we call faith or confidence that allows us to go through the cycle more easily in forgiveness. <coughs> and that brings us into this place of feeling touched by life. Not that the touching is always pleasant, but it's always beautiful. Mm-hmm.